It's 2022, and here's my first podcast from Lady Anne Dodd. She's a fascinating lady. She spent a long time of her life with her late husband, Ken Dodd. Why not have a listen? Because I promise you, it is a great, great listen. Liverpool Live. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I cannot tell you how thrilled I am. I, I really can't tell you how thrilled I am. I was a great admirer and respected this lady's husband so much. And to have this lady in my company right now, and it's Anne Lady Dodd, because it says that on the book, but I checked it anyway, because I thought it was Lady Lady Anne, but it's not. It's Lady Dodd. The book is called The Squire of Naughty Ash and His Lady, and I've got Lady Anne Dodd with me. Anne, thank you so much for joining me. I'm absolutely delighted to be here, Peter. This book, thank you for sending me, it's magical. It's magical. Oh, thank you. Was it a hard thing to do because of the love you had for each other? Um, it wasn't hard because it was. A, I met Tony, Tony Nicholson as a result of the television programme we made for BBC. It went on BBC Two yeah. on Christmas 2018, um, called How Tickled We Were. And he did it, he made the programme so sensitively that I felt quite comfortable afterwards when he said um, two or three months later it had been this nugget in his brain, he'd like to do a book with me. But... Um, and I, I rather liked the idea, but I, I still wasn't madly keen. But I knew I would, if I did one with anyone, I'd feel comfortable with him. So what I said when we started, I said, look, I don't want you to go to a publisher first and ask for an advance. I said, I'd be very happy to pay you something for your time to writing it to begin with. So that if it comes to the fact I don't like it and I don't want to go to print, we don't go to print. Because I didn't know how much I was going to reveal that I'd be comfortable with, that I'd suddenly think, I don't want to. And the agreement was, anyway, it's up to me. If I don't like it, we take it out. So having had that agreement, when we finished it um, through his agent, we uh, they went to a publisher and um, uh, came up with this smaller publisher, Great Northern Books. But they were so very keen, and the boss of it was very keen, and, and it was lovely to deal with them. They were so happy to do it and were keen. So, and doing the, getting into... Going back to your question, sorry, um, it was it was easier than I thought. How long did it take from beginning to end? Um, well, we started it soon after that, so in twenty nineteen. I suppose just the year really, because it was out on the July, April the first, twenty twenty. Covid was starting. Yeah. I always say this to people because it is fascinating. I mean, you've been through so much with Ken, and you've got so many first. What was your thoughts and feelings when somebody put the actual book in your hand? It was a tremendous thrill. I couldn't believe it, really. It, I, I liked the cover. They kept me in touch with everything they were doing, the pictures they'd selected, the cover design and everything. And um, I ordered a box of books because you get six free, so they sent me six free, so I suppose that's the first <laughs> one I saw. So I kept that one, and I put the tips from Ken to me. <laughs> That's lovely. That's lovely. Was it difficult what to put in and what not to put in? Because the life you had together, both of you, and you, your career, and your career with Ken, and everything that happened, was it difficult to put put it together? Um, no, because Tony was very good at guiding where he thought it was useful to expand on and where we got too much on this or whatever. Um, and I've still remained a certain amount... Um, not secretive, but 
um, because he was quite private about his private life in his life, and it doesn't seem right to me to delve too much, but I, I can't believe how many people are telling me, oh, I never knew that about him, didn't know this about him. And I thought there were a lot of things about Ken that everybody knew when they didn't. But I've only revealed things in, an, in a way that I think is interesting, I hope. I think that's nice you say that, because I, as a broadcaster for 40 years, and especially with the late-night phone-in, have given so much of myself... Yeah. But I've held a lot back. Yeah, you have to, I think. People don't. You know, Ken, when he stood there, this persona on stage and, and this magic, and he's giving all this. So you have got to hold something back. Yes, yeah. Um, I can't remember what I've held back now. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but you, you you sort of automatically reveal the things that are foremost in your mind. And, and you, I suppose... Unless you're stupid, you should know which is something that the public might want to hear about. Um, you know, but I have been surprised how many people say, gosh, that's really revealing. And I thought, I did. You know. We're talking um, to Lady Anne um, and we're talking about the Squire of Naughty Ash and we're talking about the book and talking and playing music uh, throughout the programme um, just because it's really special. It's a piece of history we're doing right now, which I'm chuffed about. How did you meet Ken? I met Ken, um, I was in a show, Christmas show, at Manchester Opera House, 1961 it was, um, and I was a bluebell dancer in that show. And he was the star of the show. I'd been in the show that was on in Glasgow with Jimmy Logan and um, Jack Ratcliffe and... Um, why can I never think of picking a chicken? What's her name? Eve Boswell. It was a lovely, fun Eve show. Eve Boswell, Eve Boswell. Wow. She was in it up there. They were in it up there. But he came down and Ken Dodd became the star of this the the, the scenes in it. You know, all the scenes, Dickie Horan production. Um Big show. Like in those days, they were all big shows because it packed out twice nightly, three times on a Saturday mm. Hard work, but good fun. And I, I met him there. He was in the show. And he used to come off stage and I'd be going on, uh, waiting in the wings, going on dancing. And he, the first thing he ever said to me, hello, Gladys, how are you? I went, hello, Flossie. I don't know, just say something stupid back to him. But that's when I first met him, yes. I, I was in the show and you do meet all the people you're working with. Was it love at first sight? Um, um, well, I liked him, yeah. And I thought he's nice. He was very friendly and very pleasant. I was it love on first sight with him? I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know if it was either way, really. I think that uh, there's an attraction there. That there is when you you just click with some people. You know what I mean? I mean, he was very friendly to all the girls. He, he liked the ladies dancing around him. We did have one or two conversations. Must have been, you know, you go to parties and odd things. And we went to um, went to my, uh, my my best friend's twenty first. And um, he was so just interested, and you could just talk and talk and talk. And I'd lost my father six months previously, or four months previously, so I was I was very much a loner at the time. The girls were very nice, but I wasn't happy. I was an unhappy bunny, very unhappy bunny, because he died very suddenly whilst I was in Glasgow, and I'm dancing, thinking I'm so clever. Oh, look at it. Oh, I can't come down and see you one weekend. No, I'm busy. And then he died just like that, and I was only 53. and So I, w I was not a happy bunny, and he could sense that. So he was a great, um, uh, always a good talker, but always a good listener. Mm. And he was a comforter in that respect, talking, just just friendship, you know. Yeah. Tell me, um, it, it just uh, entered my mind when you were saying that now. And by the way, I feel he's with us because that last interview I did with him in Liverpool um, at the Tower was amazing. And he was 
quite religious. Has he always been, or was he always religious? Yes, he was. Yes, he was, but not in a, in a way telling everybody else to be, you know, not in a pompous no, no, way, no. Um, very privately. But if people had problems, certainly fans mm. who would come to the door and they'd, and they'd tell him his problems. He was that sort of person. Yeah. And he'd say, especially if they'd just lost someone or they'd lost a child or something like that, and he'd put a hand on the shoulder and say, you know, if you feel like that, why don't you pray? You don't have to be religious to pray. Just pray. You feel mm. as though you're talking to someone, tell them your problems and your worries. Pray. And it so, helps. You see, I love people like that. Uh, Bishop Tom... Who's just got the freedom of the city? Yes, I went. I, I interviewed. Yes. Of course, that's where yes. we saw each other, and I loved him yes, because I went up to him and I said to him, "You know, Bishop Tom, I've I've lost my religion since my mom died." And he went, "You'll find it." Anyway, how are you? Did he? I loved him. Oh, what a lovely man! And that's what Ken would be like. Pray, but there's no problem. What just pray. Man. Yeah. What a lovely. I just man. love that. That comfort zone he yes, gave me, you know. Yes. But I, I, it stayed with me when Ken left after that interview because I'd not seen the religious side. And I wondered, because he was poorly and, 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 and ill, whether he found more comfort in his religion. Well, our local vicar, our vicar, current vicar, would visit quite a lot. And he had a visit, a visit from the cathedral because over the years we'd started going to Coral Evensong on a Sunday. Yeah. Because it fitted in well with the time uh, when we come late from a show the yeah, night yeah. before. Yeah, yeah. So we got to know everybody at the cathedral. For the last 15, 20 years, we'd go to the cathedral quite a lot. And But our vicar, Julia, had known him because she'd just come in that year. Yeah. And um, she would visit. And um, we'd have communion. You know, you could have communion in, in, in the hospital. So, so religion was quite important. Oh, yes, it was. Yes, yeah. it was. Yes. Yeah. Let's go back to you and uh, when it started. So when did you have aspirations to be a dancer? Oh, I was at dancing school, like so many people who are listening now. Ladies go to dancing school as a child, but I love ballet. I just loved it. But I was my excuse that I didn't get very far was I was too tall, but I didn't have good ballet feet. I had arms and expression and movement. That was lovely. But my dancing teacher used to say, Look at her arms and the lengths and the expressions of the head. But for God's sake, don't look at her bloody feet. <laughs> Dreadful. I couldn't do point work properly. But I, I love dancing. And um, so what I did, I was going to dancing school on a Saturday and the Bluebells were appearing at Manchester Opera House the previous year. And I thought, I, I read in the newspaper that um, people had been and got an audition. I wonder if I could go for an audition. And I had the cheek to go to the stage door and ask Miss Bluebell. Miss Bluebell, she was staying at the middle, and they said, no, she's coming down, blah, blah, blah. When she came down, met her. And she said, oh, go up, this girl will take you up and tog you out in the outfit. Oh, so I got, I mean, I'd been at dancing school with pretty little white things, tutu type thing, you know, for doing exams and everything. And she put me in these black fishnet tights and a leotard and pulled my hair up and put a knot of hair on the top and... And high heels, I'd never danced in high heels in my life. And I had to go to the back of the stalls. And at the opera house, they had a great big wide area at the back of the stall for standing. And she said, right, do a few kicks and a few this and a few pirouettes and everything. And I was doing, tripping over on the carpet, you know, not the easiest place to dance. And she said, right, would you like to start on in Paris on Monday? And I went, oh, Whoa. I've not told my father, I've not asked. And oh, I was only 18 at that time. Oh, well, wait a minute. And she actually said, well, where do you live? And I lived out in a little village called Style near Winslow. 
And she said, well, I'll come and see them. And she came and saw my parents, met my parents. I wasn't that good. I think it's just, she was... And did she, that say yes? Well, I told him my mother said yes. And then I told my mother my father <laughs> said yes. So that's the way you bully them. <laughs> so you went to Paris? No, I, w- I went to Paris to see the show ah, right. at the Lido, yeah. which was a magnificent show. It's all underground. I don't know if you've ever been. Uh, yes. Absolutely incredible. But it frightened me. The girls are all nearly six foot anyway. Four foot headdresses, high heels. They're like giants. Yeah. And I'm a, I was always a small bluebell when I joined. And I was supposed to keep saying I'm five, eight and a half. I was only five, seven and three quarters. But you know what I mean? I was a small one. Anyway, she said, and she put me up in her house on Champs-Élysées. Oh, wow. Rue Buff off the Champs-Élysées. And... Um, she said on the, on the next morning, seeing the show and everything, she said, would you like to work here? And I can't believe, I actually said, well, no, thank you very much. I can't, no wonder she didn't kick me out. She said, well, would you like to go to Rome and work for 12 weeks on television? Oh, I said, that sounds exciting. So that's what I did. To Rome? To Rome. 12 weeks? 12 weeks. Television? Television. Wow. Absolutely. Just gone straight Absolutely in? Absolutely fantastic. That's incredible. It was such fun. It's such fun. So did you not then think your career was going in a different way? Did well, you have well, aspirations? I was a secretary at Manchester Airport for BEA when I left school, right. so for 18 months, and then, boom, did this in within a, a week or so. And then just, I went out then to Rome. The contract was from January to April out there. It was most exciting. Wow. Very, very hard work. The first well, dancers do. People forget oh, and don't realise. It is hard work. The warm-up before. Before you exactly. can start dancing. But, but not a ballet dance no. or modern no, no. dancing, character no. dancing and things. And um, it was a new show every week. And in those days, they didn't. They only had had some sort of Ampex, but not like nowadays. Yeah. And you could switch from either live to Ampex or Ampex to live. It was a bit of a complicated thing. So some of it was live and the costume changes. And it was three dances a week. And we had to learn an Italian song the first week, which was specially written, which I could still remember now almost because you're so... Um, and... And although I remember it with great joy, I was crying my eyes up most nights because this other girl and I, who were both the smallest, we were slow picking it up because we hadn't learned routines that quickly if you don't to dance school. Yeah. I'm with Ken Dodd's fabulous, fabulous wife, Lady Anne. We'll, we'll, we'll say that one more time and then that's Anne. So with Anne. Um, when you first met him as a dancer, did you think he was a funny man? Truthfully. Oh, absolutely, it's very, very funny. Oh, you did like him? I, I, I would watch from the side or listen in the dressing room to the tannoy. He was very funny, yeah. very, very funny. I can remember some of those. I mean, occasionally, there's the odd gag would would work its way through the centuries, through the, centuries, through the um, decades. Right. The thing is, he was so creative. He was always writing. All his life he wrote. I've got hundreds and hundreds of notebooks. I have about 700 and 800 notebooks, which, incidentally, he did tell me to burn. And I, I haven't. Yeah, it made me promise to burn them. Promise, promise, promise. I'm afraid I promised and I broke the promise because I knew I, I somehow knew I shouldn't. And no. different people like John Fisher, who yeah. knows a lot about books and things, yeah. said you mustn't burn them. And different museum people yeah. said don't burn it's them. It's interesting you, know. you say that because, yeah. of course, Bob Monkhouse had his books and yeah. left them to Colin Edmonds, the writer, oh, who right. and he's got them. Yes. And then Colin, Colin said when he dies, he's going to give them to a museum. Yeah, that's right. They've so I'm be... really glad you didn't. Yeah. No, you I, know. I, they're innermost thoughts. I In his lifetime, I would never have opened a notebook and dreamt of it because they're almost diaries. They're, they're notebooks, they're like this. Yeah, yeah. They're duplicate notebooks. If he was writing things out, he wanted ideas for scriptwriters to work on for a television programme, he'd write it in a duplicate thing, then send those off. 
and I'd hear him on the phone talking to writers and I'd say, well, why do you... Why do you need a writer to write that? You've virtually written it as you're talking to him. He said, no, I need an extra slant on it. I need this. Yeah. And they've got an extra vein and we're working, you know. Uh, but he's always getting the ideas. And in the book, in the notebooks now, I, I really don't like, even now... Really? And That's girls, a, like a respect thing. Yeah. Like yeah. the girls who helped me, I have two wonderful girls who helped me, both sort of work part-time with me. And um, they've been sorting out of bags and bags and bags because we both of us hoarders, yeah. both of us untidy. Um, these notebooks, and I've, as a rough count, 750 plus notebooks, yeah. big notebooks and diaries, but they're not as diaries, but every so often you'd write a date because it would refer to a show. And luckily, if we put the year, they've been able to sort of make them chronological. But I need to just uh, go in some of them. I need to have a look. There's certain things we want to know. It's I mean, interesting you say that. Abigail... Monkhouse, but Monkhouse's daughter, all these years later, is still sorting his stuff out because he was like a hoarder and a collector. And him and Ken were both fanatical over comedy. comedy. This is it. Um, I think his last television show that um, Bob Monkhouse did, and I remember him going in his dressing room to take this row of tablets and everything. But he interviewed Ken. He wanted Ken on this interview. I saw it. It's a beautiful interview. It's a beautiful interview. And he said strange things like, he, he's wondering, and we love him, he's very quiet. But as a person, he's very quiet and he's very... And he is, and that's right. Um, and I've met one or two magical people who, in our business, who are very quiet yeah. there, but they come out in another way. You know... Do you not find, though, you've been in the industry for so long, do you not find that comics are complex people? Oh, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Well, we've been interviewing people for this documentary we're making that hopefully will come out in a year or so's time, but it, it, the, the thesis of it has, has had to change because it was originally going to be a story about putting an exhibition together, putting this, and then we've gone on to all the different things I'm doing with this legacy, and it's got like that. But... During it, we've been interviewing some comics. Now, I'd never met Lee Mack before. Mm-hmm. And because of working during the evenings, mostly, yeah. shows, and if yeah, I'm not, yeah. I'm having a rest you or missed falling it. asleep watching television, yeah. I've missed them. Yeah. And I had him very, very funny, very, very clever, brilliant writer. And he gave us a, I mean, an interview, but I hadn't met him before, so I wasn't nervous of meeting him. And we were just chatting. But what I couldn't believe was this tremendous respect for Ken, and he was desperate to ask me various questions. And he had said we were in an Airbnb place in town with my, my group, my, my little company. Um, and he just sat there, kept asking me questions. And I wanted to ask him. But I didn't know much about it. I soon learned, as soon as I watched, you know, yeah. whose lie is it and not going out and everything. I think it's very, very clever. And he writes it. But he, going on about Ken and the things, I couldn't believe what he was asking me. It's like you were asking Yeah, things. yeah. Tell me, did, did the squire, did Ken know how respected he was. Did he have any idea? No, I don't think so. I think that's sad. Well, Because he was loved it, I, more than people will ever, I, ever expect. I, you're right, I do talks now, which I do not, not many. Every so often, I do one tomorrow from, in, at the Adelphia, as it happened, the ladies' group. Um, and I end up saying, I found, since he's died, from letters people write, and they always say... I met him, and he helped me at this time. I had a crisis. I met him, and they're lovely letters, lovely. And then, I hope you realise how much he was loved. That comes out every time, in different words, but the feeling. And I said, and that's what I do feel. He was loved. 
Thank you. Good night. <laughs> At the end of it all. No, because it moves yeah, me then yeah. because it's too. When did you join him? When did you actually start in work with him? Um, oh, about late seventies. Because yeah. he'd been engaged with a lady who Anita Anita Bootin. And I'd met her. She was at the theatre with him a lot. And she, and she really helped work him with work for him. She'd been a nurse, and then she gave up that, and she worked with him. Um, and really, he knew that she'd given him a lot of help to get him to get to the Palladium. Uh, because uh, she used to check his, uh, sit at the side of the stage, writing her down things. And, um, so, and she was always very encouraging. Um, but they'd been together a long time, and it... And then what happened? She she got cancer and she died um, in the seventies of seventy seven. Yeah, um, but uh, and then sort of our friendship sort of developed because we'd kept in touch. He encouraged me then to do an act. I did an act in the clubs for ten years, as well as being a stewardess yeah. because yeah. I loved it. I just yeah. Yeah, I yeah. couldn't. I wasn't back in the business. I mean, I was a, stu- a dancer and then I gave it up after the, the Rome and the Glasgow and Manchester. I went back to the airline because I didn't want to go abroad again. Can you imagine? She offered a contract in Japan. <laughs> Why? I didn't go. But I didn't want to. I wanted to get away from it. Yeah. And, and my mother was on her own. Um, After losing kids, dad. Well, two kids still at school and all yeah. the problems of that. So I went back and I worked as a stewardess then for many years. But I still, it gave me time to do an act. And we'd be on the phone. He'd tell me, Why don't you try that? When it, you know, just encouraging. Uh, as a lot of people were. Did you do gags in the act? Uh, no, I did impressions. I did up-knocks in 19... <laughs> <laughs> really? Up-knocks? Oh, knocks, my yeah, word. So, do you remember the first day you worked with him? first show I did with him, did my act on a show, was at Buxton. And it was in... Um, that theatre? Wonder- well, there's a Buxton theatre there, yeah. the theatre, the, yeah. the Opera House Buxton, glorious theatre. But there's also then, there was another theatre at the side, um, probably... I don't think it was the actual theatre we worked in. It's another part of it where they have a when they have a festival. Anyway, yeah. we did a a, a one nighter there, oh, right. and that would be late seventies. Yeah. And um, but I was still working at the airport. You see, still, I'd gone into personnel management then, which was a bit heavy going. But anyway, he um, uh, said, "Well, you could do this spot on this show if you want to have a go." And it terrified me because the difference was when you're doing it in clubs. They're talking and drinking. They're paying some attention. They think they'll clap like mad if they like the medley you're doing on the guitar. Oh, this is great! But but then they carry on talking. You know, but that's a club. You know what the atmosphere is. I'm talking about social clubs. I'm not talking about nightclubs. You know what I mean? So to get on the stage, I look at I went and they sat listening to what I was doing, and they're doing my impressions. And then it went all right. I went all right. I wasn't whatever, but it terrified me because you could you could hear hear a pin drop. Yeah, they were proper So that was the first time doing an act in a theatre. I should have thought. Tell me, in those days, did he do a long spot? Has this developed over the year, this unbelievable... It is unbelievable. I mean, and the gags, you know, it's oh, time nice. and a half for no. uh, for coaches and, no. you know, and you're pulling a face. Had it developed? Well, what, what happened, when, when you're doing theatre shows, which have a time thing... And the reports are sent back to the yes. senior management, and they put in ten minutes, fifteen, and you spot, and you do it. And when he first started, he said you got you got a note if you were two minutes over. Yeah, absolutely. So you really kept to time then, yeah. and he was able to keep to time. That's why he always spoke so fast. He wanted to get so much in. He always was a very fast speaker. But but um, um, so really, when you're in a big theatre show or in pantomime, you know your timing is is really controlled. Absolutely. So. 
he'd do three spots in a summer season show. I know at Blackpool they used to get the thing where the band said, um, well, can't you keep to time, can't you keep to time? But then they didn't really mind because they were getting overtime, but there were some of them being awkward. So what they did, they lost their overtime because he said, well, I don't mind if they don't stay to the end, just my drummer and my keyboard will play me off. Oh, right. right. <laughs> if that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. Because the, the audience were there. They were mm. still there, 3,000 twice nightly, you know, yeah, yeah. nearly 3,000 yeah. at the Opera House. That was the most amazing venue. And and he'd be absolutely... They'd be on fire, the audience. And he just couldn't They just finish. wanted more. Well, so he, that's how it developed. I think so. It, it was the audience's going, fault. Yeah, blame them. <laughs> um, but this is not many minutes over, but it'd go over. Yeah. So, of course, some of the band were saying, that's ridiculous, we were enjoying that, and we're getting overtime as well. They killed it. with But whatever. There were big orchestras those days, and it's a big cost yeah. paying overtime for a big orchestra. So he was disciplined enough. But he, the Blackpool ones, it, one of the things he described, and I heard it on, and he thought about it, after he died, actually, this description, I heard an interview somebody played, and he said, when you're there, and there are 3,000 of them there, and you're telling gags, and if you ever remember, he would go gag after gag after gag after gag, and we build up, huh, and they miss one, so they don't have to, ha, huh, huh. and then at the end of the little row of gags, they've got to have a big laugh, and they go, ha, huh, huh, and the whole audience goes, rocks in their seat. But there, 3,000 people rocking towards you is a wave movement. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was almost yeah. as though they're coming out of their seats. Yeah. And he said, that, that is the most wonderful feeling. Yeah. And you know you've got them, but you have to get them. And he would say about a big theatre, it is harder than a small theatre, because you can see in a small theatre where you're, you've got to play up there, you can't just play down here. Yeah. If you've just joined us, I'm talking to Anne and Dodd, Ken Dodd's um, lovely, lovely wife. I've got to ask the biggest question I can ever ask. What is the longest he ever, ever did? Is there one night that you go, or one day you go, what? What was the longest? Not, not really, but there are people who will write. People oh, yeah, write and say, I didn't get out of the theatre till two yeah, o'clock, yeah, three yeah. o'clock. That yeah. might be because they queued for an autograph and yeah. they let them come in. Yeah. I think the latest ever would be about... I mean, we had a contract with some theatres... And you must finish by midnight. They were yeah. very good. And we yeah, start yeah. at seven. Apollo theatres were very good with us. As long as you finish by 23, 20, 59, we're okay. Others, it would be overtime from 11 onwards or whatever. And surprisingly enough, we'd keep it a bit shorter then because the overtime became, comes out of your money. Yeah, yeah. So it's a bit silly to dock yourself for doing more. But um, I think the very latest would be just before one o'clock. <laughs> one o'clock. Well, one o'clock, really. Yeah. When all these stories are about later than that. But no... Harper's 12 wasn't that infrequent. That's interesting. That's yeah. interesting. How did Ken feel about um, new comedy? And he was a, an incredibly clean comic, yeah. Ken. Incredibly. How did he feel about the way comedy was going? Um, well, he didn't like the mucky side of it. Um, and when they say alternative, alternative to what? It's either funny and you laugh or it's not. And if it was... Um, if it was a men only, he, he, he knew he'd mucky dug himself like anybody. But he didn't, he didn't find it necessarily to swear or to... He didn't like the way it either, it's either in, in your pants or in the, you know... And it's not even funny, he said so much of the time. It's not funny, it's shock. So he didn't like that. But he did like a lot of new comics that... I don't know, can, can I name one? You don't, yeah, please. No, I can't. I'm, I'm saying oh, I can't just, right. just like that. Yeah. But he, he, he did enjoy meeting new comics and, and ones he's admired on, on the screen. You know, there are, um, 
they had they generally when I think of it, they had to be slightly eccentric. They've got to be magical. And a lot of the young ones can be. But the business of just getting on there and, and swearing yeah, yeah. There's no point yeah. to it. Did he have an all-time favourite comic himself? I know he admired and respected admired all the so older many. Ones, but yeah. did he grew up with admiring people like Ted Ray, yeah. Rob Wilton, and all those. Um, but um, um, uh, not really. I mean, the, so there wasn't the one person you could say, "Wow." No, he he, he did admire this this skill, yeah. and the very different skills, and the, the creativity. He, he, he used to love meeting new comics. Quite often, new comics would come and visit him. You're really young, and and students, and um, he'd give them advice. But one of the things he always said is, "Be original, be yourself, and creative. Be creative. Don't just copy. Watch people. Watch for timing. Watch for delivery. Watch for all sorts of because they were watching him, and he'd watch people for timing. Yeah. You know, timing is the most important part." And he used to use the expression too many words or too little words in a gag and it doesn't work. And I, when I was doing the clubs, I used to hear people do gags and there'd always be a comic on and I used to think, I don't know where you got that gag from, mate. But he told it wrong and there's no laugh. <laughs> and this fellow came off and said, oh, no, I'm not very good at that gag. I said, well, I said, I know where you got it from. They didn't know and you can. Yeah. I said, but you're telling it wrong. But it wasn't for me to tell him how to tell someone his gag properly. But unless it's told exactly, you know, like, um, you know, that's the way I tell them. Frank, Frank, Frank Carson. Like Frank could say, you know, yep. it is the way you tell them. I'm talking to the squire of Nottyashe's lovely lady. One of the most magical things about doing this show with you, and I love this book. The, by the way, if you want, looking for a present, this is a super book. It's a beautifully written book. It's called The Squire of Nottyashe and His Lady. And it's, Ken Dodd, it's simple as that. It's a, a beautiful pictures. While we're with you, we're playing his music. When did he start singing, singing? Because I really, genuinely loved his yeah. voice. He's got a lovely loved voice. his voice. Well, in a way, that was almost the first thing he did. Because I think that um, he always wanted to be a comic. And as you'll see some of the early pictures there, he was young, so he put a, a cork, black, black and cork, he made himself a tash just to make himself a bit older and everything. Um, so he always did gags. He did ventriloquist as a child at eight when he was eight. Started doing it in the backyard for the kids around the neighbourhood. So, but when he, in his teen, late teenager, he'd make himself older, and because he had a good voice uh, on, doing, he'd started doing some Masonics because these are the dates that come in. And oh, well, he was with Hilda Fallon, Hilda you know, Fallon Roadshow, and the Roadshow oh, and wow. everything. So that's where she yeah. encouraged him to do a little bit of comedy, but to sing and to and moving around and everything. What a wonderful inspiration. He just loved her, and I feel awful. She'd, there'd be so much more. Well, there is a picture of him there. He absolutely worshipped. They're lovely, lovely people. And she died not that long ago, and her sister, his, her sister did as well. He would burlesque the songs that the Masonic people were doing. That's why, when he did Masonic, he, the one on before the singer, all together in the world, dance, dancing, and so he burlesqued it and put some of his own words in. And my favourite piece of him that to me shows so much of his talent. And I've seen it on a, a snippet of... Um, it is in the archives of BBC. Is when he does the floral dance uh, with the crazy suit on, you know, yeah. the big flower yeah. and all the yeah. tatty things coming out of his sleeves and colour or eye, bow tie there. He's singing the floral dance. But there's so many little nuggets of entertainment, of comedy in it. And he, he pulls his face and his lip goes up and he goes... Oh, and, you know, all these tiny bits that you work the business of a song. It's the business, people... 
it's bits of business, and that's what makes them laugh. And it's just a wonderful piece, this floral dance. But it stems from, I heard him do that in that first show in, in, at the Opera House. He did floral dance, he did Granada then, and he was still doing it. And he even rode to Mandalay, which is the one anybody can click yes. the thing on, and they get it off a, from a DVD that was never shown on television, but it, it's there. Yeah. Does it matter? Yeah. It makes you laugh. And that's what he loved to burlesque. Comedy. That's where he started. But he yeah. had this lovely voice. That was he surprised when he got his first hit? Well, he did well with Love is Like a Violin. It yeah. didn't get to number one, but it did do well. And somebody tells me now, I believe it's Cruella, there's a film, and they're using Love is Like a Violin in it. Oh, right. And I better chase it up and make sure they get it. You get the money, it. yes, absolutely. <laughs> because absolutely. it's his voice. And I said, Are yeah. you joking? I've never heard, but because I'm in, you know, you're in these associations like I'm in equity, I've been equity 60 years, and, and you probably get some sort of words. Yeah. But uh, as long as it's recognised, it's not well, the money, it's how the did he, How did he cope with his fame as a singer? Did, was he surprised? Because it's a well, different direction. That was, that was in the early years, in, in the early 60s when he did um, Love is Like a Violin and then Happiness and Different Ones. And it was it was Tears in '65 because yeah. that was his big big yeah. year with the Palladium and everything. Yeah. And when Tears and they, they they all love to music publishers love to say, well, he knocked the Beatles off the number ones there because they were always number one there. So he did. He, it was lovely to to get that accolade. He, he was very proud of that. He was very proud of that. Also, brought a new audience in. It did. Built a new audience. Yeah. Yes, it did. Yeah. You must have been. Tickle pink over there. Well, it was it was lovely. It yeah. was very, very exciting. Yeah, yes, it was. Um, yeah, I think he definitely enjoyed the uh, that he could be a singer and yeah. get to number one. I Absolutely, think that's amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, can I believe hated garlic? Did he hate many things? He hated garlic second hand. No, he didn't realise sometimes he'd have a bit of garlic and it oh. tasted good. <laughs> he wouldn't know it's there, but he would know if if it was. Well pronounced, but yeah. so many people. We had friends, you know, in the business who come in. Hi, doing can smell the garlic? <laughs> it's so strong. I think he has a strong sense of smell. But he used to. He didn't like garlic. If it, I think he didn't want to. If it did that time, what does he? Have? If he's had garlic, he'll be putting it on someone else. No, that was the only thing. But he liked nice, good food. Yeah. And there are people who think you can't cook good food like garlic. But he liked my cooking. I used tons of onions. But that's like a mild garlic. Mild garlic, yeah. but still very garlicky taste. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, um, did he have any time off? As in, could he switch off from comedy? Oh yes, uh, oh yes, yes. He, he had this massive collection of books. He loved going to the library. He, that was his hobby. Mm-hmm. Going to the library, All, although it was, in a way it's his research really as well. Yeah, he, he loved his books, and I've um, gathered together a lot in an outhouse and converted into a library. Um, but that's not all the books. Oh. No, he, a time off, and and we had some nice, interesting holidays. We did go only ever about a week, ten days. And the longest was when we went to um, America. We went to Las Las Vegas and saw every, saw every show you could have in the four days we were there. And they're in, in San Francisco and Los Angeles. But I couldn't believe we did in the afternoon, the Saturday, and the first half, and then another one there. Um, but that was in about 1980, so it was different then. It was just one strip. Um, but we we did. He he liked a, a holiday for ed- education, not meaning you go to the museums things. But we did. He loved one that was a holiday for the mind, or a holiday to end, to other things into your mind, totally different. And then a holiday just for your body to relax. And so we might go to Tenerife or somewhere like that for a week. 
Just chill out. He'd read and I'd swim. That's it. Did he ever want to work another country? Did he ever? Well, he did. He did what they call CSE tours. You know, yeah, yeah. Which services I did that. Yeah, super. Well, you know, because yeah. you're going around Germany, yeah. and he went to Gibraltar. He went to um, um, out to the Maldives. Was it? You know, um, and Gan. One Christmas, he did a Christmas show from Gan. It wasn't on Christmas Day, you know. Yeah. But you go out there. He said they had they had a massive football match between the teams. Half of them there, half of them there. About fifty aside. And, and he said, "Well, who, who wins?" He said, "Who cares?" <laughs> <laughs> you know. And, one very old lady lived on it. She was about twenty-two. <laughs> the nurse. No, it was a. He, he did travel there, and we did do a, some shows. We went to Canada, and we did one at the Roy Thompson Hall there for a few days, and that was great fun. But I think he felt that most of the audience would be expats. Did he ever think of Australia? He thought about it, and then we never actually didn't actually make it because Max Bygraves, Max Bygraves went out there a lot, and he told him once. He said, "Oh, we should get out there, Doddy. It's great." He said, yes, but if I go up there, they'll forget about me. I said, no, they won't. That's what people used to say. But he he wasn't... He, he was enjoying what he was doing, and he didn't want to interrupt it. But he did. we did think about it. We did think about it. I wish I'd more persuaded him. Can you explain his love of Liverpool, why he loved it so much? He's a vibrant, and they'll always encourage you. They'll always encourage you. Doesn't, you, you know this. If you're doing something... And it doesn't come off well. Well, they'll encourage you. You know, you, 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 I used to say, God loves a trier. Well, Liverpool does. They love a trier. Mm. If you work at it, if you have a go. You know, um, some places are more cynical, some audiences are cynical. But here, if you're prepared to work, have a go, do it in the business. Then, But he liked Liverpool because it was full of people. People are very pleasant and friendly. You know, they come from other places. They come to university up here and they think, oh, I'll go out there. And they don't want to leave then. No. And he always had time for people when he walked Absolutely. through the street. Oh, it would no. take for a half hour. Yes, it's going to get back. I want to watch something on television. Yeah. 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 I've got to ask, uh, and I won't dwell on it at all, but in his dark time when he had this terrible problem in Liverpool with the tax, it was one thing that stayed with me forever was the gag he did because we worked together at one of the times I worked with him as, was at the Playhouse. And he said, I'll introduce you. And I went, please don't introduce me. And he went on, I think it was 40 minutes. I mean, he destroyed me. I just walked off to my own footsteps. Oh, no. It was terrible. <laughs> but I always remember his gag and he went, I used to uh, mug the postman at Christmas, but not anymore. He brought the letter. <laughs> and I love, and that stayed with me forever. And that summed up his problem. But joking apart from that, how did he cope within himself when he had the problems over the tax? Was it a bad time for him? Of course it was yeah. a bad time. It was um, an inappropriate time, an unnecessary time. Um, paperwork might be in a mess, all sorts of things in a mess. Blah, blah, blah. And the advice I always remember from one person, from one of the, you meet different lawyers who suggest this one, suggest that one, before we actually ended up with George Carmen. Um, one lawyer said, and he was, he'd been a tax lawyer, and then he'd actually changed his coat, as it were, and became an ordinary lawyer. Um, a barrister, and he said, "I've read the papers. I've read this. I've read all the papers, all the you know, you know papers, not the documents and everything." He said, "And in my experience, this should have been handled, handled out of court. Yes, maybe wrap a nettle, maybe pay this, to the, keep your papers in order in the future. This sort of thing. Yeah, and it would have been settled out of court. But because you who are you are, you are, they made you have to or try this. to make an example. You have to fight this because yeah. yeah. they want you. Yeah, they want you." 
Yeah. And that, thank God, because that meant he did fight it. Yeah. And that's all George Hammond said. He said, I want all the facts, I want all this, and I want to do this and that and the other. And he was the most amazing man. You talked to him for an afternoon appointment. We might be there two or three hours. And at the end of it, he'd have a little notebook like this, and he'd just written the hard word down, and he'd precy what we've said in three hours into facts like that. And yeah. he just got the picture straight away. Very, very clever brain. Yeah. But it was bad. But how he got through was prayers. So he definitely, turned, yeah. he t- in his own mind, he yeah, would be yeah. praying. Uh, he would have a, yeah, I found a notebook that actually pertained to that time, and I went, oh, God. and there were different yeah. crosses written in it. Sad, sad. It was I've, not, I'm in a print. Going back to him on stage, and I've got to ask this as a comic, has he ever had a bad night on stage? In well, your he, experience with him? Well, you, ha- you can have an awkward audience if the sound's No, but has he had a bad one? Not really bad, bad, because he would work at it. If it's his own show, you know what he said the worst audience was? The worst audience is an audience that hasn't paid, and people say, oh, that's a bit funny. He doesn't mean a charity one. He means the one where they've not paid to buy a ticket to come and see you. Because once they're coming to a theatre show, if you can't deliver to the people who want to see you, yeah, yeah. that's your fault. But if you've got people who haven't chosen to see you, it, it's a corporate do. Now, we, the years he did corporate dues, they were good, they were nice, and they were a bit more respectable the way the people behaved. But audiences, as you probably know, and he's found it, they can be horrible to corporate do. So we used to avoid them. Why go somewhere, certainly in later life, why, why pit your head against it? But he, when he did do them, if they were tough, he'd work and work and work until... And I'd say, why do you work so hard? Because the, the ones there that are listening are fine, and any around the back, they're just showing off to the girlfriend. You know, it's a works do. And they're all showing off, and they're just—they're not interested. I hate they have works to. Well, exactly, because they've not chosen to see you. They've not chosen to see you. So it's—it's it, yeah. it's the person. Who, what he meant was the person who hasn't paid to see you. Those are the worst audiences, it's the hardest. But a lovely theatre audience is a dream, and you've just got to deliver, and you've got to work at it. Yeah. You, we said you can lose them if you start messing. Or, you know. Yeah. I'm talking to Anne, Lady Anne, Lady Anne Dodd. And we're talking about the Squire of Notty Ash. Uh, before we talk about the charity work, I've got to ask, uh, he, he'd been to the palace before to, to get an award, but to, to be knighted. Tell me how he felt when he got the letter, when you can't tell anyone. Because it's a, a couple of months or something, I isn't know. it? You, I, I, I was told once it's about six to eight weeks before. Yeah. And I know there was that many different groups would write letters. I'd get copies of letters from Buckingham Palace saying, uh, thank you for your lovely letter about Mr Dodd, but it's not up to our, Her Majesty, it's up to the, the nominations committee. Da, 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 da. And I, in, the, in the later years, I used to think, oh, wouldn't it be nice? And I'd think about six weeks before, oh, no, nothing there, nothing there. But the actual time this, first letter, this letter arrived, I, I wasn't even thinking about it. And I just took it through and I hadn't opened it. it. No, I didn't open it. It was just, it just looked a bit official. I said, oh, there's a sort of official letter. I think it's an invitation to something or something like that. There's an official letter. And I left it for him to open. And then I thought, oh, I wonder what it was. And I went back into the room and he just looked at me like this. And he went, and he gave me the piece of paper to read. And I'm reading, reading, think, I don't want it. It's got to be a, it's got to be a knighthood. It's not going to be anything else. And when I saw it was a knighthood, I gave him this great big hug. And he said, um, the strange thing, he said, that was the right reaction. And I think he meant that, I meant it absolutely genuine, that he has been knighted. It doesn't mean to say if we, because we did get married in the end, but it didn't mean 
I will now say, right, we should get married or something like that. It was yeah. more that yeah. he has been knighted. And he was he was very pleased. He was very pleased. But it was a way he just showed me the letter. And read it for yourself. <laughs> Loved your outfits at the palace. Oh, thank you. Loved your outfits thank at the you. palace. You dressed beautifully anyway. Oh, thank but you. I like that. That was a bit special. Uh, thank you. You lost Ken. And I don't want to dwell on this because this is so painful all the time and painful for all his fans, but you were the love of his life and, and it makes it even worse. When did the charity idea come into fruition? When did you think Oh, about years, that? years before. Well, he'd always had his, his, his own smaller charity and he'd yeah, do yeah. things for it, his Kendall Charisman. But this, the Kendall Charisman Foundation, he set up about uh, 15 years ago and he'd put some money in that. And But it was just there um, as a foundation. So... When he passed away, I could put a great big chunk in there because I'd got married, and they mm-hmm. say this point about he had the last laugh. There wasn't that wasn't the last thing he was thinking of. It, when when you die, your spouse, partner, friend, whatever, in the law, gets that. Yeah. So that's how it works. So I put equivalent to what would have gone in inheritance tax and gone straight into the charity. So that's nice. But no, because it's no great thing of mine to do. No, but that's nice. But I might not have done. Yeah. But I did, because it solved my conscience that the fact if I hadn't married him, it would have gone anyway. Yeah. It, well, no, it would have gone into tax, inheritance tax. So anyway, so that's there. And then I've got this. So, but um, I was told then by people with foundations, when there's quite a bit of money in it, try not to touch the capital. So I've got capital that's technically mine and capital in there. And I've been doing all these different things. And one of the ones that's completed, which is lovely when you consider we've had COVID and everything... Our church hall was his first school, primary school. Uh, 1837 it was built, and it was just there, a square, an oblong sort of building, whatever, whatever. Not a listed building, building, but in an area of conservation. The church itself is listed, and the church is actually a year or so younger, so no idea why not. Anyway, um, so I thought, let's do it. And we've actually completed it, but everything had to be done you know, take the slates off and number them and all this. In the end, they let us use an, a newer form of slate that's approved. And it took a long time planning to get the extension approved. And we got an extension each side, which actually is correct. Now, I wanted it to extend so it went like that, but it goes like that. But it's they're nice. Um, and it's in use and it's gorgeous. It's really, really lovely. And I wanted it to be every single penny on that did that was Ken's foundation, which it has been. But it worked well because I would pay chunks out as the, as the entrance was coming in, you know. Didn't have to do it all in one go. Uh, and we used uh, they used a lot of local people, all done very proper, properly. Um, you know, so people, the builders who did it, were, were builders we'd used for different things, so their firm. Uh, and, and we could keep control. And a wonderful lady at the church who's a treasurer, oh, she's a tough cookie, apparently. All the builders, oh, she's saying this, got to check, this is right, that's right. A wonderful job, and it's the second odd happiness hall for church and community. And a lovely sign put up there now. Fantastic! But that, that's the biggest one completed. Would he be pleased? Sorry, would he be? Pleased? I'm sure he would be pleased. Yeah. I'm sure he would be pleased because he always said we should do something. And at the same time, we'd done, we did. He he kept going on about the clock should work, so the clock works properly now. They had got some money to do that, but I made sure they had enough to complete it. And we got four lovely golden sides to the clock, mm. and and. The mechanism was taken out, completely stripped down, put back, and that works. You've done the job properly. They've done it. Oh, yes. If you're going to do it at all, yeah. do it properly. So that was there. And then at Broad Green, they they needed some money to do up a building that's now 
the the second or <laughs> do we need to live around? Um, it's the uh, it's it's an a building that in which the doctors new doctors coming in and nurses it's like a training area. They're obviously qualified doctors and nurses and things, but extra practice for them. Uh, they have false arms where you can actually practice doing a needle the proper way, best oh, way. Yeah. And the arm is real, and it will liquid will come out, and everything. it's incredible. It's like a plastic thing. It's the brilliant uh, training aids, but also they can watch the screens and watch the operations going on and yeah. really learn. Save having to crowd around in a, into a um, yeah. an operating room, you know, too many people. So they're watching it. I mean, and uh, Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital has an amazing these amazing new machines, you know, the robot thing and everything. They're very advanced. So do a lot of people ask you for money and then um, you sort well, of look at it? I just and... tend to do, deal with um, big propositions, bigger propositions yeah. um, at the way it's gone at the moment um, because we've a lot to do with Shakespeare North, the yes, theatre. You've heard about the Shakespeare yeah. North, which is wonderful. And Ken was asked, would he uh, like to be involved with that? And that's why I'm glad I'm involved there because he was actually involved at the beginning of that. And they said, you see, Mr. Dodd, if you were able to help with us with some money, we could maybe call a cafe after you. We said, well, that's something a bit better than that. <laughs> so when I saw the choice, one of the choices was to name the auditorium after him. But that was quite a large sum. So I thought, no, I'll do this thing that says performance garden, which is like an open air theatre part with steps coming down and a stage and everywhere. Part of the complex. But the amount I'm paying for that, in actual fact, is more than it would have been if it was there. So I wish I'd said that in the first place. But it's nice that this is the Kendall um, Performance Garden. And it'll be lovely. Um, and there's, there's other things in the pipeline as well. Yep. Big things, you know, in Clatterbridge. That was the new Clatterbridge. To think that they got that open during COVID. Yep. And they were treating them last year. Yep. We just did the radios and television in all the rooms, yep. which was a nice thing to be able to do. And it's not my money. No, no, it's no, Ken's but, legacy. You know, it's it's lovely it's the way such you a do it. It's lovely, it's a pleasure lovely, to do it. Lovely the way you do it. Pleasure. I'm talking um, to to Lady Anne, and if you hear, by the way, tapping and banging, I've just got to point out the lady is very passionate, and we are sitting at a table. Don't so no, don't you worry about a thing. And that's and we are no. I'm, I have to sit on my hands. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I love it. I don't want this this time to end. I just think it's great. We're playing lovely music by Mr. Dodd, and we're with his. Fabulous wife. One of the sad things to me in show business, when we lose Ken Dodd, when we lose Tommy Cooper, when we lose Bob Monkhouse, when we lose Scylla, anyone can sing a song, anyone can tell a gag, we lose stage presence. Yes. We lose a technique yes. that nobody can ever nick yes. because it's those years. And you were an act, so you know exactly what it, it, it's about as well. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. It's, I remember Petula Clark was the first person I ever saw who brought an audience up with her hands and didn't realise what she was doing. And then you go, oh, my word, she's got a standing ovation. And it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's that. Yeah. And that's what yeah. we lose when we lose yeah. somebody like Ken. Yeah, you're right. You're, you're right. It, it, it leaves a massive hole, but not just me personally. It's just that he was um, such a complete performer. I don't realise, I didn't realise how clever he was till he'd gone. And as I actually delve into the odd notebook, because the girls are saying, well, I have to see things, and they'll show me something specific. I thought, oh, my gosh, what a thought. Yeah. In a creative thought, you know. Um, yes, the, uh, there's a lot of work to be done in my mind. 
The point, I, I, yeah. the point I was going to make about that was, yeah. look, you losing your husband, um, Bob's wife losing Bob when she was alive, um, when the boys lost Silla, you're not just losing your loved one, you're losing a national treasure. Yes. So the pain of going through, because you can't switch your telly on, you can't switch your radio on, because you'll hear, see, I'm getting upset now. Uh, you hear one of his songs, you know, you just get upset because yeah. you've got to yeah. not only grieve, but grieve because he's he's out there all the yeah. time. It's the, difficult. The, the, the strangest thing is I can watch a programme, I can even find something on the internet. Oh, that's nice. And that's not as distressing now. It doesn't do distressing at all. I can watch them now. Well, it's distressing in that part of you. Yeah. You just put yourself, put this little shield over you. Yeah. The, only, the worst thing to me that I ever did, one of his messages from the hospital, and incidentally I was able to be staying there to let me stay on a camp bed, which was very, very good. And he'd sent and one of his messages on the phone that said, oh, where are you, Annie? Are you coming back? What time? Have you seen the dog? Have you checked everything? Have you got, are you coming back? Are you come waiting for you? And I lost it. I lost the message. What happened, it was at the beginning of a bunch of messages... Yeah. And I said, I've got to rub those up, but I've got to leave that one on there. And I heard it, and then I went, Ding! and I, d I deleted. <gasps> I can't imagine that you doing that. That was yeah, the most uh, yeah. painful thing I've done, because yeah. that was something he was saying to me, just to me. Yeah. And I regret that so much. It's so yeah. stupid. So anybody's listening, if ever you've got a loved one on a message, keep it and make sure you've done that, because that, that was a message to me. One of the things, and we're making this documentary, and I've come across lots of, they said, well, let's have any bits of home film we've taken when we've been on holiday. Yeah. And I've, they've come across one bit, but I didn't even remember, but I did when I saw it. And we're going around an old ruin in um, Greece, it will have been, um, and he, he used to like shouting from the bottom, go to the back of those steps, you know, in these old amphitheatres. And I'd go right to the top and they say, and he, and he would declaim and I'd hear every word. It was the most exciting thing. You know, because you would in there. Yeah. That's how they built. That's why theatres were built where they were. So that would happen. I'm walking around this thing and he said, oh, and we'll put the kids in this dressing room and we'll have this one. We're walking around the old ruins and things. And that's wonderful because he's talking to me. We're on holiday. And I said, oh, this is lovely to have. It's just yeah. uh, things. But I, unfortunately, we had a video camera stolen and it had lots of little films in it. And it went. I felt like saying, keep the camera, but just give me my films. Oh, back. yeah. Once again, the book is called The Squire of Naughty Ash and His Lady. And it's an intimate biography, which I, I love that, using that word. And tell us about the documentary you're doing. Um, the documentary is linked to is, it's something we're going to do in the future, uh, an exhibition. But it's not going to be announced till next year. So, But there's planning. And, and the documentary is to follow a route of how you get an exhibition together, how you get the items and the whatever. Um, and that's how it started, following a story. And then COVID came, and we'd done six months' work of bits and bobs, filming and bits and bobs. And it turned out that, um, well, and of course, at that point, BBC and ITV were not giving commissions to anyone. As soon as COVID came, oh, nobody could... Because everybody's working from home, nobody knows what's going on. So... I said, well, I'd be happy to finance this myself, not the charity, not the charity. I'll finance it because I don't want us to waste the time. Yeah, I'll give them time yeah. as well. So we're making this um, over this two-year period. And it's to do with what we're doing with Legacy, but it's to do with comedy and development. And and it's it's grown its own sort of legs. Uh, le yeah, yeah. legs. And, and we're doing all sorts of stuff. 
And um, I mean, it's been such a tough time for everybody with COVID, apart from the tragic time with people who've lost um, uh, family and friends. It's dreadful. You know, we seem to have escaped, but that's why I do think, I know maybe it should be the campaign to make sure everybody gets vaccinated because apparently, even today, they will say that the people in the hospitals now with COVID are those who weren't vaccinated and certainly the ones who are dying. You know, I know that I have the statistic. I the no, no, but that's but I'm a great one interesting. Yeah, well, we I, really I'm with you, and Jonathan's with you. So freedom not to, but the danger is what's happened. But there's nothing but, else. But there's, there's exactly there's no alternative to it. Exactly. That's the problem. We've never been in this yeah. position before, yeah. and hindsight is wonderful. Yeah. But you know, yeah, absolutely, we've got this far. Thank absolutely. God. But um, uh, the documentary will then cover things like we've been filming how the development of Shakespeare North. We've been doing every so often we do a little bit of filming and see this wonderful development. Mm-hmm. It's a um, uh, Jacobean, Elizabethan, Jacobean period, um, Eliz- a theatre, and it's all wood, the internal part, and it's like the, the Wanamaker in London, which is the small one next to the Globe, mm-hmm. is the same, it's that sort of theatre. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely glorious, um, and there isn't a nail in it. And I've spoken to the, the carpenter, the main carpenter, you know, he said it's all tongue and groove, the whole thing. Wow. And of course, they make it together, then they have to ch- adjust and adjust and adjust till the wood settles. But they've started putting that's already in now, getting in. So and and they worked right through COVID. Don't think they actually ever stopped because a lot of building sites could carry on, but as soon as one got COVID, they had to suddenly lay them off. But when we went there, there was only one way round, not just for us, the builders. They didn't meet each other whilst they're building. You know, they literally it was so well planned. And the company that did it, they must Credible. It must, it's paid off because they've actually managed to keep on schedule, and that'll open next year. So that's that's great. Fun. So, so this is all getting yeah, collated and ready. Yeah, things like that, and yeah. and other things that I just I get such a thrill from because of the book. This got publicity a year later, but it didn't get publicity at the time. I didn't want it. Alder Hay, a wonderful group of people called the League of Friends. Yeah, yeah. And every year there'd be a show at the film. League of Friends, and Ken used to do that for them, as did other people in the shows, you know, yourself, yeah. if you're in pantomime, whatever, come along to the League of Friends afternoon, raise some money, and it's all for all day. And the League of Friends did it. So I wanted to... They're such a lovely group of people, and Ken had actually reopened the um, emergency part of Alder Hay, which had been furnished, refurnished by the League of Friends, and they asked Ken, would you open it? So he did, little plaque and open this thing. So that was about a year before he died. So when they said uh, they were talking to me about something they wanted to do, I said, well, what's on your bucket list? Well, there is a machine they need, and it's called the ECMO machine, which is extracorporeal, atoid body, and the rest of it is to do with it. It becomes a heart-lung machine for tiny, tiny babies. So they had one, and they needed another in case that one was in use and there was an emergency. And I said, oh, well, that and the sum was a very sensible sum of money. But, right, I'll do that, but I'll do it through you. So that they can have a nice feeling, as they because they they're they're all getting on in years. We're all getting on, and it's hard to attract young people to help with that. It's not that they won't do charity; they will, but it's hard to attract them into do a, with a group of other people. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know what it's like. So I said, right, you'll do it that way. So they said how how much it was, and then they said the hospital have ordered it, and when it comes in, they'll tell us how much, and I'll pay them, and they can buy it. So then, and we're all happy then. So that happened. So I didn't know. I knew the machine came in, I was, but I hadn't really followed it through. And one of these interviews, this newspaper, it suddenly went on the Daily Mirror, a big double-page spread. 
I want to, the parents of this tiny child want to meet Andog because it's his money that <sighs> saved his life. And the picture is a picture of this tiny baby, the tubes and that things. Yeah. He was born with, and apparently it's terribly rare, but it does happen. The tubes in the heart and lungs were the wrong way round. The AO, you know, yeah. imagine that. And he was going blue. And they brought him to Alderhey from, from Rochdale, I think it was. And they brought him there, and it was really very unlikely he'd survive. And he had COVID on top of it, this <gasps> tiny, tiny baby. But they had this ECMO machine, this second one, because the other one was in use. So my, my the machine that Ken Dog Foundation paid for was in use the moment it arrived for this tiny baby. And the next picture on this thing, because it's a year later and I didn't know about the story, is this lovely, chubby little baby of one year age. Wow. And the mother and the parents are saying they want to meet me to thank me. Because it's COVID and I've still not met them. And the hospital are very careful because he's yeah, yeah. having checkups yeah, and things. So we will eventually, I'll get to meet That's him. fabulous. But I want to cuddle him. That's, because that, that's, when they told that's me that, that, that made everything. Yeah, worthwhile. Everything worthwhile. Yeah. Tell me, what was Ken's love of the Royal Court? Why was it important to him? Well, the Royal Court, of course, he used to do... He did lots of seasons there in the early 70s. Right through the 70s, he did quite a few seasons. But in the middle of the 70s... I don't know quite what... Yeah, well, the, he did the Marathon Mirthquake about 73, 4, something like that, because it was going to close. And the council said, we can't keep paying, we can't give support it anymore. There's that. He said, well, we mustn't lose this beautiful... It was a Howard Wyndham Theatre originally. They had a group of theatres around the country. But they were selling it, and, and there wasn't the money. There wasn't the money in the 70s. Councils have got other things, important things to do, and people would say, I'm not putting my money for a theatre, I'm starving, I've got nowhere to live. You know, so I can see that. But he'd sort of brought it to attention by doing this. He said, I'll put, he said, I'll, I'll put a show on. But meanwhile... He he did this um, uh, thing where anybody come in, it was more to drive, it was a publicity stunt, get people's attention that this theatre mustn't go and get people to write in and say what we need to do. And he did this marathon earthquake, which raised some money, but yeah, it yeah. wasn't going to... People would just throw you something in the bucket, it was free, just come in and out. But it got a lot of publicity, and it went in the Guinness Book of Records, the first one. I mean, since then, people, I think, John Martin's on ours, but it's the actual doing it there, non-stop, whatever. So that was in the Guinness Book of Records. But he loved the theatre to play. It was a beautiful theatre, and it still is, and it's working. And Gillian Miller runs that, and yep. I'm, I'm, we're doing work with the Comedy Trust that's right. and Gillian and a lot, which I'm sure Ken would think that's great because he did love the theatre. And he had a plaque put in there um, commemorating Rob Wilton, Ted Ray, um, the It Ma chap, you know... I didn't know, remember, but anyway, all these wonderful yeah. old comedians, yeah, yeah. comedians. And he had, they, they put this brass plaque up there. And then Gillian, 18 months ago, said, we're putting a new brass plaque up about Ken. I said, oh, that's lovely. And she says, we're renewing the other one because all the building that had been going on, they did the extension and stuff, they'd gone, had, the brass had gone all off. Yeah. So she made another one. So there are two plaques there. That's, that's great. That's lovely. Yeah. And it, she's wonderful to work with and she's so... I love her. Oh, she's incredible. She is incredible. No, she I love it. I, I, yeah, I, I went to some see Homebaked yeah. Oh, yeah, tremendous. Oh, the food. Yeah. I went, when we went yeah, to see Homebaked. But isn't it fabulous having dinner and then watching a show? Yeah, but I not, love but it. But it's not chicken in a basket. No, it's not the chef. Yeah. Oh, hi, Joe. Yeah. Love the fish and chips. Let's not talk about food. Yes. I'm starving. No, no, no. I'm starving. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the statue in Lime Street Station? 
Oh, it's lovely. Tom Murphy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, that was a surprise because they, they rang me and said, we're thinking of doing this is um, the the um, company, was it? Um, anyway, they, they rang me to say, we're thinking of doing this under somebody else on it and we're not sure who. And I suggested Bessie Braddock. Oh, you suggested? I wow. Did. I did. I, I preferred it to their suggestion. I yeah. said, well, they said, do you, who do you think? I said, well, such and such, Bessie Braddock. Because they called it Chance Meeting or whatever it was. And the thing is, when he, in the 60s, when he was going down to do uh, the Palladium, she'd be going down into Parliament. Of course, she who had the mason did all sorts of things. Bessie was a character of Liverpool. Yeah. So they might have been rather different politically and their thoughts and things, but he respected it. Everything. Yeah. Different views. That's what's the beauty of it. You can have different views and respect someone else's. Agree to disagree or whatever. So they'd be having, not arguments, discussions on the train, but they'd meet. And... In fact, one of the funny pictures is there's Harold Wilson, Bessie Braddock and Ken Dodd at the reopening of the cavern or one, one of the occasions they reopened or redecorated or whatever way back in the 60s, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think it's lovely. Um, he didn't know about it. He didn't see it. Well, neither of us saw it before. But he didn't know. In an interview, he pretended, yes, I thought that would be very nice. And he says, <laughs> he mentions Bessie Braddock. It was, it was my suggestion. And because she had the egg, what does that mean? I said, well, that was the start of the stamped egg. You know, really? Yes, I think so. I didn't so, know yeah. that. Didn't yeah. know that. Because he knew, had been yeah. a curry years later, yeah. going on about bringing attention to the fact that eggs can be poisonous. Unless you... Tell me, looking back at the book, is there anything you would have taken out or anything you'd have put in, or are you happy with it? I'd like to have been a little bit more erudite about what I said, and I'd like to have been... Uh, sometimes it could have... Yeah, I think when you're writing, the, the way, my parts are in italics. Tony, Tony Nicholson wrote the book with me. He asked me to write it with him. And um, he, he didn't put words in my mouth at all, but he helped suggest... When I said them, he put what I was mm -hmm. saying. Yeah. He would tape it. He'd put them in the thing. And sometimes I'd say... Well, you don't need to spell that out quite as much. And I think that in a book, you have to be careful you're not playing down to your audience, telling them, explaining a, a little situation too fully. You've got to leave a bit to the yeah. imagination and work it out. So that's all I would do, edit some of the descriptions of events down a little. Just That's, that's all, really. Was it difficult with the pictures? Because you must have a Ooh. million well, pictures. Well, he said, let's put pictures in no deal of scene. Because I said, where did you find that? And I must have let him look through some boxes. What do you want that for? And, and, and no, comb, hair's not combed, and I don't remember seeing that one. But people have said they like the pictures because they're not what you expect. Yeah. I mean, you can put a thing on Ken Dodd up and you get hundreds of pictures come on. There. We used to get very good pictures we don't have that people have bought off the internet. But, you know, they all say Getty things, and oh, I don't know how they managed to get them without things printed on them. <laughs> We're coming towards the end of time, which is sad because I honestly could do this for hours and hours. Honestly, you're a fascinating lady. We've played some great Ken Dodd music. I mean, just, it's quite magical. An audience with. I had a story that, uh, and correct me if this was wrong, that um, somebody was offered to produce it and Ken said, I'm sorry, she's a young girl. What does she know about show business? Was that true or not? No, great. No, they were, that, that, right. no, absolutely not, because right. because the first one was produced by somebody called Patricia Mordecai, executive director, and Lorna Dickinson, producer. Two women. 
And his thought was, two women? I was going to work with two women. He, was, he wasn't, you know, but, but he just wondered, because it'd always been male yeah. producers. Yeah, yeah. But they, they, they had visited, watched Ken's show over a year. They came to several, oh, wow. several shows. They took it that Certainly Lorna did, and yeah. Lorna is now the woman who, who is running my documentary. So she knows Ken. Yeah. She knew Ken. By the end of that year, they knew what they were looking for. And they knew his favourite place is in a theatre. He said, oh, a television, and they see this on interviews he did with um, different people. He would refer to television. It's not the same. So they hid the camera. You couldn't really see the cameras on the day. They made it look like a stage, nice proscenium arch, almost as if you... And you really didn't see the cameraman. Um, and that was so clever of it. And she had so many going, because normally, you know, they'll only afford a couple... They, so that she had shots for everything, yeah. an amazing director for shots. And she knew where the gags were coming, and she'd get the and the person they were going to refer to, and brilliant producer. And she's sadly no longer with us, uh, Patricia Mordecai. And Lorna is... And because they'd worked at it, no, there's no way he, he was thrilled to bits no. with the way it went. But we didn't have to half have to work at it because he had to edit things, make it fit some, with the yeah, things. Because although it's a vehicle for your yeah. act, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's not. Yeah. And the questions are nice, pertinent and wonderful. Yeah. How do we finish an interview like this? I mean, the, we've touched on your life. We've touched on... Uh, Sir Ken Dodd's life, but and we played his music. It's such a difficult finish because we've missed so much out. The man was a genius. Yes. The man was a comedy genius. The man was an archive of gags. The man was an encyclopedia of talent. Um, and he had a great assistant on stage because you were funny. You did make me laugh at the. And what Jonathan, my producer, went to see the show regularly, was a great fan of Ken's. And I went, when I had some time to myself, when I wasn't working, um, I don't know how we can finish this. You must miss him every day of your life. Oh, yes. I, um, I've got a wonderful picture. David Cobley wrote, uh, did a painting that actually was bought by the National Portrait Gallery in 2003 or four. And he went to see the unveiling of it, and it's in their permanent exhibition. A most amazing picture. And he said, oh, I don't like that. It's very dark, and it's in skin tones, and I've never known anything look so like so real. It's a brilliant picture in the National Portrait Gallery. I was taken to his house, his studio, by friends. Well, Steph Cole was one of them, and um, uh, the lady who's the consultant on Long Lost Family. Um, Ariel Bruce, they they took me to his studio in Devizes, which is near where Steph Cole lives. And I didn't know why they were taking me there, except to see this very big picture, which actually is on the back part of it, that picture. He painted this, and you can imagine that it actually, obviously, it, yep. I'm interrupting it there. But that's him, the entertainer, and that's him, casual at home. But... He only did it, he got these pictures of Ken, were only from two or three photographs. He didn't go and have to sit for him anything. It was quite incredible. He came to see us in, because it was Western Supernair was the near, nearest show we were doing, and he drew and drew something up. And this, I said, oh, of course, that's a photograph, and then you've done this. Oh, no, that's painted. But that's from a photograph that used to be on a brochure we had that we used to put things in and call it a programme. And 
it's the two faces and Ken always called himself two people. But I love this picture. And when I, when I was taken to see it, they said, what do you think of it? I said, oh, it's magnificent. I said, is he thinking of selling it? Will he sell it to you? So I bought it from him, but I don't think he was sure about selling it at all. And Ariel actually said, oh, I'll, I'll negotiate with you. I said, no, you won't negotiate at all. I said to David, I'd like to buy that. You think about over the weekend and decide if you want to sell it to me. And when you give me a price, I'll pay that price. I'm not going to haggle, which meant I don't expect him to say a higher price and then knock down. I didn't want to haggle. He should get what he wants for it. And if it was way over what I would say, I would say, no, I don't want to buy it. But the extraordinary thing was right in the middle. I had no idea what to pay for paintings. It was in the middle of my little range I had in my mind of what to pay. And all he's saying there, he's saying, how much you pay for this picture? I'm not worth that, you know. But it's worth every framing penny. It's a wonderful picture. So I say goodnight and hello to that picture every day. I'm in that. It's in my big room. But at the moment, we've just been putting those windows in. That's why we couldn't do the interview there. What would Ken say at me doing this interview with you for a couple of hours? I think he'd be amazed because when he came out of hospital, there were some little pictures, really the last bit that was seen of him on television. And the fellow from Northwest um, said to me, um, as I'm getting the car this side, he'd just got in the, that side. He said, he asked a question and Ken said, what did you say to him? What have you been saying? Well, because I was giving an interview in a way. So I think I think he'd be absolutely amazed. But any interview, any time I talk about him, I can't tell lies, I find. I can't em- embellish something and I can't... I can keep secrets, but I can't tell fibs. Does that make sense? Totally. Do you know what I mean? Totally. If I answer a question... So that's why I found some questions difficult... I didn't know what to expect today. And I thought, well, if you ask something I don't like, I'll just say, next question, please. But I haven't had to say that at all. <laughs> the book is called The Squire of Naughty Ash and His Lady, an intimate biography, Sir Ken Dodd, written by Tony Nicholson and Anne Lady Dodd. I can't thank you enough. I've loved every second of this and I could do it all again. Thank you very much, Pete. If you enjoyed my podcast with Lady Dodd, why not subscribe? It's free. And we've got some great, great podcasts. Liverpool Live.